And let's just ask God right now to calm our hearts and to speak to us through his word. Father, I thank you uh, that you are a God that is sovereign. We've seen that here just a couple of weeks ago in the message from Isaiah chapter 6. Father, you're in control. You're omnipotent. You're powerful. And Father, you can keep the distractions from getting in the way of what you want to communicate through your word today. And I pray that that would happen. Father, we're all a little bit tired. It's been a, a full week, and it's tough losing that hour of sleep. Father, I don't know what's been going on in the lives of each one here this week, but you do. Father, there's things on our hearts and on our minds. Um, we've had a funeral this week, and we have lost another close friend. And, and Father, those things might be weighing on our minds. My son just lost a best friend in, a, in an accident this week. That's on my mind. And Father, so many hurts, so many struggles, so many hardships. And yet, Father, you are a glorious God. Father, I pray that we'd see you today. And Father, we'll glorify you for showing that to us as well, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in an area of tremendous beauty, don't we? We are blessed. We're privileged to live where we live. Every day we can walk outside, and we can see manifestations of the glory of God. It's all around us. What's the most spectacular thing that you've seen? Some of you guys have been in this area a long time. Ron's been a ranger. He's been to probably almost every national park. He's seen some phenomenal things, and all of us have, and we could share stories probably for two and a half hours about all the things that we've seen. You know, maybe it's a beautiful sunset. A couple months ago, a month ago maybe, I don't know how time flies, there was one that was just fantastic here in our valley. It just looked like the entire sky was on fire as you were looking out, and it wasn't just one little part. It, was, it stretched out from, from horizon to horizon. It was beautiful. It was magnificent. Maybe for you, it's a particular sunrise. Maybe you're up at a high mountain lake, and, and you got out of your sleeping bag in time to sit there on the edge of the lake, and you see the sun starting to pop over the, over the ridge, and, and the mists of the water just starting to lift. There's a deer feeding over on this side, and the fish are starting to surface in the, the lake, and it's just glorious. It's quiet, it's serene, but it's just beautiful. Have you ever seen a herd of elk stampede? <laughs> it's something to see. Jerry and I had that privilege. We were over on the east side hunting, and we, came, uh, we saw a herd from a distance, and we ran about a mile on the flip side of a ridge, and we got close enough, and somebody jumped him from down below, and we didn't see that, but we pop over the edge, and we're probably 100 yards from this herd of elk. I'm guessing four to 500. I don't know. It was a mass of elk flesh moving across this hillside and then down through this little notch in the, in the, in the opening there, and they were just moving. It looked like one body the way they were running. And we just sat there with our mouths open. It was so incredible. And then Jerry looks at me and he goes, did we just see that? And I said, yeah. Did we just let all those elk go by and we never lifted our guns? I said, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't pick one out of the herd. It was just this mass. It was phenomenal. Something I've never seen before. I'll probably never see again. How many of you saw the Northern Lights two weeks ago? Put your hands. How many are bitter that you didn't see the Northern Lights two weeks ago? There's a few of us like that, right? It was phenomenal. And I've heard it wasn't as good of a display here as others have seen, but friends up in Alaska that we, that we filled in for up in Iliamna said it was the best display of the northern lights they'd seen in the 17 years they've been up there. Just the, the shapes and the shifting and the rolling and the, the flaring, he said it was just phenomenal. And there's some wonderful things that we can see, yet take the greatest things that you've ever seen and multiply it a hundredfold. 
And you're not even going to be scratching the surface to see the true glory of God. They're just dim reflections of the true glory of God. And we see these little glimpses, and I'm thankful for that, and we're blessed to see them. But there were those in Scripture that got to see little bigger glimpses of the glory of God. And we're looking at one of those passages. Turn with me again to Isaiah chapter 6. The book of Isaiah and chapter 6. What Isaiah saw here in the throne room of God completely blows away even the most majestic view of creation that you and I have ever seen. He was transported into God's very throne room. He saw the similitude of God in his splendor and in his glory. His majesty was on full display. And let's read these first four verses one more time. They're becoming familiar to us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. We want to focus on that little phrase this morning, the whole earth is full of his glory. And I hope that God gives us a little bigger picture of the gloriousness of our God. We've seen in this passage so far God's divinity. We've seen his power and his omnipotence. We've seen his sovereignty. We've seen his complexity and the fact that he's a trinity. He's three and one at the same time. And then most recently, last week, we saw him in his holiness, in his sublimity. And this antiphonal cry of the seraphim proclaimed that God at the very core of, who his, of his being is holiness. It's holiness that makes God who he is. And so we, we delved into that a little bit. We saw that God is absolutely distinct from his creation. He's exalted above them in infinite majesty. He belongs in the sphere of the sacred. He's distinct from the common and the profane. He's wholly other, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's wholly other. We saw that he's the incomparable one, the unapproachable one, the unique one, the exalted and sublime one. We saw that in this way, holiness is equivalent to separateness or to sublimity. And we define that word this way, something very good and beautiful and noble and excellent. That which inspires awe, that which overwhelms us with its magnificence. It's the quality of greatness, a greatness beyond all possible calculation, beyond all possible measurement, beyond all possible understanding, and beyond all possible imitation. My friends, that's the holiness of God. And we looked at that last week, and and this week I want us to make a connection because there is a link between the holiness of God and the glory of God. The first verse of that antiphonal chorus reiterates what God is in his essence, who he is, what he's made up of. And they said, holy, holy, holy. The second verse, the second line describes what he is in Revelation. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's the way he reveals his holiness to us. And so we could say this way, glory is the correlative of holiness. That's a big word, Dan. We were just talking about vocabulary and be careful what we say. I'll define it. Glory is that which gives holiness expression. And maybe we could say it this way, glory is the visible manifestation of God's holiness. Because God is so holy and so sublime, God has to manifest it to to us in a way that we can see it and understand it and survive it. 
because we can't view God in all of his holiness. And so he gives us these little reflections, manifestations called his glory that we can see on earth to show us a little bit of a picture of who he is in his holiness. Maybe an illustration will help. How many of you truly understand the sun? I mean, we see it every day, right? And we're glad that it's there. We wish we'd see it a little more often in the winter. Um, But we don't truly understand what's going on. We know it's a star. We know it's in the center of our solar system. We know as we read scientific books, it's this perfectly round ball of hot plasma held together by its own gravity. How does that even work? Maybe, maybe Britt can help us with some of this from an engineering perspective. Um, it's held together by its own gravity. It's heated to incandescence by constant nuclear fusion reactions going on in its core. Do you understand that? It's amazing. It's mind-boggling. This blazing combination of gases is 864 miles in diameter. That makes it 109 times wider than the Earth. The surface temperature on a Fahrenheit scale is approaching 10,000 degrees. That's on the surface. What is it in the core where those reactions are going on? I have no idea. It's composed of multiple layers, each rotating at different speeds, conducting electricity, permeated by this complex magnetic field. It's over my head. I don't understand it. But I can tell you this. The sun produces light. (laughs) I can see it every morning. And I can see the effects as it goes away every evening. And I can tell you that the sun produces heat because I can feel it on my skin. Well, it's been a while, but I think, if, I, think I vaguely remember feeling the effects on my skin. <clears throat> Dave and Barb could tell us more about that from their excursion last week. It warms my body. I don't fully understand its true essence, but I can see and feel its manifestations as it reveals itself to me in light and warmth. And folks, God in his holiness is much the same way. We can't see God and understand God and truly fathom him in his holiness. But he gives us these manifestations of glory that we can see every day to help us get a glimpse of who he is and what he's like. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful we live in a place where we can see it around us on such a regular basis. In a sense, we're spoiled. I'm thankful that God shows us glimpses of his glory and manifestations of his holiness. It says in this passage, the whole earth is full of his glory. Another translator put it this way, the fullness of the whole earth is his glory. A little more flow with the Hebrew there in the passage. Well, today I'd like to look at three thoughts that I think will help us in this regard to understand a little more about God and his glory and how glorious he is. And let's start first by defining some terms. God's glory defined in Scripture. What does it mean that God is glorious? Well, we'll look at both the New Testament and the Old Testament meanings here. In the New Testament, the word is doxa or doxa. Um, The root word actually has the idea of opinion or view. It's the idea of what I think about something. And we think, well, how does that apply to this idea of God's holiness or his glory? Uh, It's the thought of giving a right opinion or a right view of God. So God's glory helps me have a right view or a right opinion of who he is. The specific form of the word in the New Testament conveys the idea of splendor and brightness and majesty, of something that's exalted high and lifted up. And so it's God's glory that helps me think rightly or correctly about him. As I see him in his splendor and in his majesty, it helps me to view him as he is. It gives me a correct opinion of him. Have you noticed in life that everybody has an opinion? (laughs) Whose is right? I'm all mine, of course. (laughs) 
heard somebody say the only opinion that truly matters, the only time your opinion truly matters is if God is silent on the issue. <laughs> um, you know, we're going through some things as a church and looking at some different things about how do we adjust things or maybe this ministry, do we keep it, do we let it go? Uh, this decoration, do we keep it, do we go? What can we do to improve the appearance of our building? And guess what? We're all going to have different opinions on those things. And in a sense, we might be opening up a hornet's nest unless we have some maturity as believers and realize, you know what, I don't have to be hold so tightly to my opinions. What matters is God's opinion. And really what matters is my opinion of God and his holiness and his glory. And God's glory helps me shape my opinion about God. In the Old Testament, there's the word kabod or kavod, and, and the root word here is the idea of weightiness or heaviness. And we don't often think about God in that light, uh, but that's the word that's used. And uh, the specific form conveys the idea of, of heaviness, the idea of weight. In a literal sense, it's used a couple of times. Do you remember back to is it 1 Samuel where it talks about Eli, the high priest? And how does it describe him? It describes him as a heavy man. In fact, when the, when the um, Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines and the word gets back to Eli, he's sitting down and he's so uh, shook up by what he hears that he falls over and he breaks his neck. And then it adds this little paraphrase, for he was a very heavy man. Uh, Absalom, David's son pulled his hair, cut his hair every year. And what did he do in a big old formal ceremony? He weighed it. And it says the weight of his hair, his hair was heavy. So it's used in a physical sense a couple of times, but that's not how it's used here. It's not somehow describing God in a crass physical way, saying that God, like Buddha, is a rotund individual, that he's heavy. That's not the thought here. It's used more in a metaphorical way, that which is deep, that which is profound, that which is worthy of respect, that which is noble. God, my friends, has weight. He is not superficial. He has dignity and majesty and sublimity. There's a sense of gravity that we must have when we come into his presence. I think we see how we can even use that concept today a little bit. Let's, let's suppose that you're maybe listening to a message, you hear a speaker, and, and what he's saying is really deep or really profound or really sobering. It really just it really hits you at the core of who you are. You might say, wow, that was really heavy. <laughs> Boy, that's some heavy stuff. That's the idea here. The flip side of that, maybe there's a person that is taking you, uh, they're ignoring you or they're treating you in a superficial way. They're not giving due consideration, in your opinion, <laughs> to who you are or what you're saying. And we might say at that point, they're taking me lightly. So we do use the concept in our, in our English vernacular that way. But that's the thought behind this here. Our God is a glorious God. And that certainly does include the ideas of majesty and splendor and brilliance. But he's also a God that has weight and dignity and nobility. It requires a degree of honor as I approach his presence. And so as I put these ideas together, it helps me get an accurate view and a right opinion of who God is. And it's a reminder that his glory is the manifestation of his holiness. So we've defined the terms in scripture. Let's look secondly, more from the passage here, and see God's glory displayed in heaven. Because isn't that what we're seeing here? I know we've looked at the verses from a different perspectives. But here, we're going to see it in two ways. Look in, in, in chapter 6, verse 1. I saw the Lord, he's sitting upon a throne, the throne is high and lifted up, and it says the train filled the temple. The train of his robe fills the very throne room of God. 
It's an interesting connection here between this verse 1 and verse 3. Notice his train fills the temple, and then later in verse 3 it says his glory fills the earth. That's a cool connection. That kind of gives us our two points here, God's glory displayed in heaven and then God's glory delineated on earth. That's where, where we're getting this. It's interesting, the word train is mentioned in the, in the Old Testament 11 times. And it's used almost exclusively in regards to the clothes that were built or made for Aaron and for the high priests uh, and for the, the other priests that were serving in their Aaron's sons. Um, it, it reminds us that these were holy garments. It says that about them. They were consecrated garments. They were garments that were to be used specifically by Aaron and his sons and specifically for worship in the tabernacle. They didn't use those when they were out playing soccer in the wilderness or whatever it was that they played. They had a distinct purpose because they were wholly consecrated garments. They weren't used for anything else. There were no copies made. You didn't see little children out there dressing up like the high priest and playing dress up and, and forming copies of the outfit. Why? Because these were holy garments. They were distinct. And it's interesting that in Exodus 28, verse 2, God says, I created these. I want you to make these for Aaron for two reasons. One, for glory and for beauty. Same word that we see here, the idea of glory. And I wonder, as I think about this, if there is, in a sense, that the robes that were given to Aaron and his sons were modeled to some degree after what we think of the robes of God. I'm not sure. In a very small human way, because these robes that Aaron and his priests wore weren't long, flowing robes because they had to move around the tabernacle. They had to serve. But it says that as God sat on the throne, the train of his robe billowed out and it filled the entire throne room. Friends, that's quite a train. In older cultures, the size of the train of the king's robe indicated how powerful the king was. And we can see that correlation here. Ladies, how many of you had a train on your wedding dress? You guys go down that route? Some of you guys went real simple. How many of you guys had one that, that kind of extended and flowed? I see a, a couple of hands out there. Some of those can be fairly extravagant, can't they? Um, I've seen some that stretched you know, almost halfway down the aisle, it seems like, as they're walking forward. Um, I was trying to think of examples of this, and, and one of the books I was reading mentioned uh, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. It would have been back in the early 1950s. Does anybody remember that? I'm not, I'm not trying to date you, but did you actually see that? Because it was one of the first events like this that was actually televised, uh, which is pretty remarkable. Did, any, did anybody actually see that telecast? That would be really cool. You did see it. Wow, you, you'll tell me if I'm right or not. I just read about it um, a little bit here today. Um, but what an, what an incredible event that was. King George VI died on February 6th, and Elizabeth immediately ascended to the throne. But they didn't have a coronation ceremony right away. It took them almost a year and a half to prepare for what they were going to do in this coronation ceremony. That's, that boggles my mind. One thing the English get right is pomp and circumstance. They understand this idea of giving honor to something. And they worked and they labored for almost a year and a half to, to do this. I can't imagine what it must have been like. Uh, what must Westminster Abbey have looked like? you got the Archbishop of Canterbury there taking his place. The um, procession route was over four miles. Thousands of people lining the streets as they're witnessing this event. And the procession itself stretched out over two miles <laughs> as they're walking. It took them a couple of hours to cover that distance from where they began to Westminster Abbey where the coronation was going to take place. So thousands were watching, millions were listening on the radio, and for the first time, millions more were watching on television. It said that they believe every single person on the British Isles saw this event or heard it, radio, television, or live and in person. 
And as this procession reached Westminster Abbey and the queen gets up from where she's at and she begins to walk towards the throne, the train of her dress was sweeping out behind her. And it was such a glorious train. There were many attendants out there holding on to the train of her robe as she made her way around and sat on the throne. And then it kind of draped around the outside. From a human perspective, probably the most magnificent event that we can think of as far as how they did this, how this was put together. But my friends, even this pales in comparison to what we see in the throne room of God. The train of her dress kind of wrapped around, and it was beautiful. The train of God's robe fills the entire throne room. Folks, our God is a glorious God, and we see that by the train of his robe. Secondly, we see it by the seraphim. These are glorious creatures, and I can get distracted kind of thinking about them and wondering about them and and wanting to pursue a study that we can't ever have answers to. But in verse 2 above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. These are glorious creatures, completely unique from any other creature that we see created by God. Do you think it's significant that they were created unique and distinct because they're proclaiming the holiness of God? Is there a connection there? I think there is. But they're the flaming ones. They're flashing in their brilliance and in their fire. They have wings. They have swift flight. They have thunderous voices. And what I want us to see is that these creatures were created perfectly for their environment. They were created by God specifically to stand in his presence and serve him there. That's what he made them for. And they were created perfectly to fulfill their ministry, to proclaim and protect the holiness of God. And only an incredibly glorious being could fulfill those responsibilities. I think it's not a stretch to say that if we were to see the seraphim today, it'd be the most glorious thing that we've ever seen. (laughs) It'd blow away the northern lights. (laughs) And Isaiah got to see this. But while they are glorious creatures, they live in the presence of an even more glorious God. How do we know that? What do they do with their first pair of wings? They cover their face. They shield their eyes. Even these creatures in all their glory cannot look on the presence of God in all of its majesty and all of its glory. As glorious as they are, they can't even look upon the glory of God. And I think that gives us a little more understanding of the magnitude of God in his glory. The glory of God displayed on the throne room of heaven inspires a tremendous sense of awe. At least it does for me. And it's no surprise because God's glory is the manifestation of his holiness. We move on to a third truth here that we see in this passage, and that is this, God's glory delineated on earth. And I'll be honest, this could take as many sessions as a guy wanted to take. (laughs) Talking about the glory that we see of God here in the creation that we enjoy. But let's look at it primarily from the passage that we're looking at here. It says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Three ideas emerge as we contemplate this, this phrase. First of all, the idea of entirety. Notice it's the whole earth as opposed to just part of the earth. <clears throat> now, there were times where God's glory came down in, in sharper focus or in a more distinct way in a local parts of the earth, right? We know that when God was leading the children of Israel, he manifested himself in a cloud of fire uh, by day, a cloud, a, a cloud of a pillar of cloud by, by night, Um, So we see those demonstrations. But here the idea is God's glory is delineated through the whole earth in its entirety. Brightness has a tendency to dissipate 
the further you get from the light. Have you noticed that? I mean, that's a common, a common thing. If you're <clears throat> working in a place that doesn't have electricity and you have your work lights up, you can see really good when you're close to the light, but the further away you get from it, you're getting into shadows, you're getting into dark spots, it's hard to see again. You're driving at night with your headlights, how far out can you see? Well, only as far as the light goes. And as it goes out further and further, it begins to, to fade and get more gradual and less focused. But friends, it's not so with God. His brilliance and his glory radiates to the furthest reaches of the earth. Flip over to, Psalm, or to Isaiah 11, just a couple pages over, where we see an interesting verse. And the context here is the millennium, but I think we can draw an application. It says in verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And then notice this, as the waters cover the sea. It's talking about the knowledge of God here. We can draw the application, I think, to his glory. But the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I heard one person describe it this way or or, uh, translate it this way. The land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. No place where God's glory is not going to be manifest. God's glory covers the earth and it fills the earth in its entirety. The second truth we see here is this. The idea of omnipresence. The idea of entirety and secondly, the idea of omnipresence. God's glory fills the earth. He is everywhere. God's glory cannot be somewhere that he is not. (laughs) So if God's glory is there, then God is there as well. And it's what leads Jeremiah to tell us in Jeremiah 23, 24, Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? In Numbers 24, 21, he says, As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Psalm 72, Blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. It's this thought that causes David to cry out in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? God, where can I go from your presence? God's everywhere. And if you read through that passage, it says even the darkness is lit when God's there. You can't hide in the darkness because God is light and he manifests himself in that in his glory. I encourage you to read through that passage in this regard later on. So we see the idea of entirety. We see the idea of omnipresence. And third, we see the idea of ownership. It says God's glory fills the earth and implied in this idea of fullness is the fact that the entire earth belongs to God. If he fills it, he also owns it. All of its creatures, all of its people, all of its contents belong to him. Look over in Psalm 24, verse 1. Flip there quickly. The book of Psalms 24. Another great psalm where we're talking about the gloriousness of God, but we just can't look at all of them today. But look at verse 1. It says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all they that dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's. In its fullness, in its entirety, everything belongs to him. All they that dwell therein. Every aspect of God's creation belongs to him. And each unique animal from the largest blue whale to the smallest bacteria radiate in some sense the glory of God. Each unique snowflake, each tree, each star, and yes, each person are manifestations of the glory of God. 
In your notes, I wrote down Psalm 148. Take some time to reflect on that psalm in regards to this. The last verse or the last couple of verses say this. Let us praise the Lord for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and the heaven. And that's after describing all these elements of the earth that are to give praise and glory back to God. You see, they not only reflect his glory, they are to proclaim his glory. Revelation 5 verse 13 says this, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I think that includes everything. I don't think there's anything left out in that description. I heard them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. All my friends, I wish we had time to dwell more on the stunning beauty of this creation and the majestic expanse of the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. You can spend a lifetime studying that and seeing God's glory in the skies. Melissa reminds us of that. Uh, she loves to look at the stars. Isn't there a comet coming here shortly that's going to be like the best view of this comet? And I think it's at 45 billion years, so I know that's a big deal uh, if that's really true. But I think there's something coming like that that we should try to get out there and look at it. The sky is actually clear. It'll be amazing to see something like that. The heavens declare his glory. And it's fun to dwell on that and think about that. And I wish that we did have more time. But this whole earth declares the glory of our glorious God. Let me just share a couple thoughts here as we close. If the point that we just looked at is true, if it's really true that God owns the entire earth, And it's also true that God owns you and God owns me. We belong to him. And so my question as I think this through is, have you submitted to his ownership of your life? Have you submitted to his lordship in your life? It starts by humbly acknowledging our sin before a holy God. And the more we see him in his holiness, the easier and easier that is to do. His radiance exposes what's going on in our heart, but it also involves now turning from that sin in true repentance and receiving the gift of eternal life that he paid for with his life on the cross. Have you done that? Do you know Jesus Christ in this way? Is he your savior? Have you submitted to his ownership in that way? I trust you have. If you haven't, I'd love to talk to you about that at the end of the service. The second thought is this. Do you have a longing to see the glory of God? Do you have a heart's desire that that just cries out in thirst to see God in all of his glory? I know many of you, and I know you have a desire to see the beauty of nature in its glory. I think all of us do. Um, Susan, you're out skiing the other day, I think. Was it a glorious day up high, or was it socked in with clouds? Socked in a little bit. But what's one reason we go up to the top of the mountain? We want to see the sun. We want to see it in its glory. And that's not a bad thing. God has given us all these things richly to enjoy. But do we have a true hunger to truly see God in his glory, to see more and more of his majesty every day? I think about Moses back in the book of Exodus, who cried out to God, God, show me your glory. What a passage. I see David in Psalm 63, this song that we've been singing. He longed to see God's power and his glory. God, I hunger and I thirst after you. I sometimes wonder what God would do for us if we implored him the same way. Would he not show us his glory as well? And when he does, to what end? So we can brag and boast, well, look what God showed me. No, that's not it at all. 
to what end? To this end. The more of his glory I see, the more accurately I can display his glory in the world. As I see his glory, I'll have more and more of a right opinion of him, and I can share that right opinion with others. And people will see that in my life. And also this, the more of his glory I see, the more reverently I can worship his name. Because I'll understand more about him and I can worship him correctly. Psalm 29 verse 2 says, Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Oh, that God would give us a bigger picture of himself. Yes, to see him in his holiness, but that holiness manifested in a way we can understand it through his glory. Friends, we serve a glorious God. Let's never lose sight of that. And let's ask him to show us his glory in greater and greater ways so that we can, we can truly live for him the way he wants us to. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this day. I thank you for the passage that we've looked at. I thank you for the reminder that you are a glorious God. And Lord, I know that I can sometimes get tunnel vision and get bogged down with all the responsibilities and the, the things that go on that just have to happen day to day. And, and Lord, the uh, the plumbing leaks and the, the times in the office and the paperwork and all, all those things. And, Father, I can get bogged down in that. And when I do, I, I don't always see you in your glory. But, Father, you are a magnificent, holy, glorious God. And I pray that you would reveal that to each one of us in deeper and deeper degrees. God, give us a love for you. Give us a passion. Give us a hunger and a thirst to cry out just like David did and just like Moses did. God, show me your glory. And Father, when you do, I pray that it would change us. And it would allow us to be more usable in your sight, to further your kingdom here on this earth. And Lord, I thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.